Welcome back to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand, a great guest today, Chris Seeger, who is the lead counsel for the plaintiffs against the NFL in that long-running NFL concussion litigation, which is just about settled, but there are some lingering appeals to the Supreme Court. He'll talk about that in a minute. First, Elite Team Blankets, their luxurious NFL and college sports blankets made right here in the USA. They're actually two blankets in one, sewn together with technology that will keep you comfortable in any temperature Machine washable that gets softer with every wash. Again, 100% made in the USA. You've never felt a blanket like this, and you can feel for yourself. Shop EliteTeam.com. Save 10% with promo code TUCKER, all caps, T-U-C-K-E-R. Get wrapped in your game day ritual. Elite Team, the official blanket of pure fandomonium. Enter promo code TUCKER to save 10% at EliteTeam.com. Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Really happy to have a special guest today. Chris Seeger, lead counsel for the plaintiffs in the long-running and still-not-ending NFL concussion litigation. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, before we sort of bring up to date on where we are with this long-running and very complex litigation against the NFL, which is on an erstwhile level settled and complete, I guess the question is uh, where, how we got to where we are in terms of these lawsuits sort of bubbled up, you can tell me better than I can say it, years ago on different fronts, and you became involved how. So I'll, I'll let you talk about sort of where these lawsuits against the NFL and the concussion litigation began and developed in, in your world. Yeah, I, I first became, and I'll do this quickly, I first became aware of the problem with concussions and um, TBI, you know, traumatic brain injury, probably around 2010. When a small group of players contacted my office, they knew we did a significant amount of personal injury and mass tort type work. Right. And you know, initially when um, I started looking at the case, I was I was a little bit of a skeptic. But as I began to uncover, you know, the conduct of the NFL, starting in the early 90s with the with their mild traumatic brain injury committee, and I began to see the fraud that was involved in the cover up. Um, I got more and more interested and researched it a little deeper and began to really get engaged around 2011. Um, the, the lawsuits began to be filed somewhere around that time, 2011, 2012, and uh, that's pretty much when the multi-district litigation was created in front of Judge Brody in uh, Philadelphia. And, right. you know, from, from there... You know, it's, I mean, I think most people know what happens from there. I mean, we, we, we litigated for a while. The NFL tried to get the cases dismissed on preemption. And before the judge ruled on preemption, which, which threatened to pretty much dismiss all of the cases, uh, we were able to reach an agreement. And we're still trying to defend it and keep it together. Right. And tell me about, you said a bunch of players, former players, excuse me, came to you and were they were this sort of similar groups coming to different attorneys around the country? How did you coordinate? How many clients, if you will, are under your auspices? How did that coalesce? So I, it's now my understanding. I didn't know it at the time that there were other players reaching out to other lawyers, and other lawyers were considering filing lawsuits. As you probably have heard, uh, Andrew. Uh, I'm sorry. What's his, Jason Lukasevich? Mm-hmm. Uh, filed cases pretty early, and others others were, you know, 
filing somewhere around the same time frame as Jason. Jason might have beaten people out by a few weeks, but cases really began to be... So my guess is that there were a number of plaintiff's firms looking at these cases and doing investigations into them, uh, like we were. Um, I, you know assume the role I did in the in the this litigation because in most big cases the courts look to appoint committees and lead counsel and things like that to lead the litigation it's with a lot of lawyers involved there needs to be organization so I was I was appointed as co-lead counsel together with uh, Saul Weiss right and you know as far as um, the the you know the the play are I mean the, the players that were individually representing so since I'm since I'm lead counsel you know, my, the relationship has changed. I mean, we no longer have individual retainer agreements with, with our clients. We are They are included in the class action. Uh, but we are continuing to assist them, and we, we will be, you know, just like all the other lawyers working with their clients, we'll be getting them tested and uh, submitting the results to the claim administrator. All right, so bringing it up to you guys are ordered by Judge Brody in Philadelphia, the multi-district litigation, and to negotiate, if you will, under her auspices, I believe she had a uh, designated mediator involved, correct? She did. Early on, she appointed a former federal judge by the name of Lane Phillips. Right. Overseed the negotiations. We were meeting with the NFL. We weren't making great progress. Um, And we, you know, in those days, we were fighting over everything. I mean, as you can imagine, you know, when you're making a demand to resolve an entire litigation, we were making demands on, you know, every injury that was associated with the problem of concussions, you know, suicide and, you know, depression, as well as Alzheimer's and ALS and some of the diseases that we got compensated in the settlement. Right. And the NFL was willing to compensate certain um, diseases and symptoms and not others. And, you know, we went from there. And that's I mean, how you the, develop the grid, which has come out of this case in terms of number of years and sustained injuries and all the things that we'll talk about in terms of how much for what injury? Correct. Yeah, we, we I mean, the, the original purpose of the litigation really was to get help as quickly as possible to the sickest players. Now, we know that this is a progressive disease, and we know that young men who are inflicted with it now and might be might have you know relatively minor symptoms to the extent that it's not dementia or ALS or Parkinson's. We also know that those things can progress, and what we wanted to do is get help immediately, and then create, in a sense, like an insurance policy. You know, a, that's why we put together a 65-year fund that will be there for any retired player should they develop any of the compensable diseases in their lifetime. And those negotiations that happen, what was would that be now? Summer of 2000. 13 was that when this was happening it's been so long now yeah it's been so long and you know i didn't look at the dates before uh, the, uh, our podcast or yeah. i should have um yeah I, I recall that the initial settlement was announced in the in the summer of 2013 now we had been negotiating many months before right um and then the mediator got involved about two or three months before we settled but um but that sounds about right. As far as and were those with you? Now, you had a lead attorney group along with Saul Weiss, as you mentioned, and others. And were those with NFL attorneys, with NFL ownership, even with NFL management? What group was representing the other side? In the beginning, uh, it was it was us, the attorneys for the plaintiffs, and the attorneys for the NFL. Right. And then that group morphed over many months into a mediator being involved, as we mentioned. And then the NFL, and I believe they've made this public, had a um, an owners committee. 
and the owners committee was um, and although they were not in the room with us in a sense they were because they were giving their marching orders to the lawyers but we dealt directly with the lawyers and the lawyers for the NFL dealt with their owners committee and the commissioner I even recall at the time when the settlement was announced you had a quote Chris about negotiating with Jerry Jones like <laughs> that uh, certainly was an experience and maybe even you called him a hard ass or something to that effect uh, yeah. Do you remember that quote? And do you, more importantly, do you remember or care to comment about the experience? Yeah, well, I do remember the quote, and it's funny because I think Jones took it as a compliment. You know, it's yeah. kind of very Trumpian. <laughs> right. That's quite a word. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, and although I was not dealing directly with any of the owners, I was talking to the lawyers. You know, again, you have a, you know, you know a lot about the people outside the room. Right. Because of the positions being taken inside the room. And I think the comment I made at the time was that he was a hard ass. And I probably could have said that about any of the owners. I mean, it wasn't an easy negotiation. I mean, when we even when we got to the point where we were making tremendous progress, it was it was day and night. Uh, people were not getting full nights of sleep. It was like a cat nap, get back to work, emails flying all night long, getting people to do research on issues. Mm. So you know, it was a it was a lot of work and totally worth it. Um, if we can keep this together, I mean, it's still under attack, unfortunately. But um, if we can keep it together, it'll be totally worth it, and there'll be, you know, well over a billion dollars in benefits for uh, for first players who come down with the compensable injuries, and then we've got testing and other benefits. So one thing that gets lost a little in this, and it rec- it occurred to me today, in looking over the agreement because we're dealing, uh, you know, every day I work on the case. You know, we have a ten million dollar educational fund that we called it but part of that money goes to making sure that we educate players about collective bargaining uh, agreement benefits that they get mm. we, we found in this litigation over years that many players well many players tried to get benefits and they were rejected and that was right. one of the reasons we brought the lawsuit but others weren't even aware of what was available to them so part of it is to you know so we've got the testing we've got compensation and we have money that we're going to spend to make sure they know that they have access to benefits uh, that they need to take advantage of. I think that's a good point. This settlement, as you know, as, a, as we need to be clear, is above and beyond any CBA benefits that the players have. And that's correct. That, and that was, a, that was a point that we spent many, many weeks on because the NFL wanted it to be one or the other. Hmm. Either go to the collective bargaining agreement and you get the benefits from that, or you get the benefits from the settlement. And we were able to convince the NFL that we needed both. And the initial settlement, you came to a figure, $765 million. Listen, I know negotiations, and I know negotiating with that group is tough. My sense is you guys came in with a number that ended in a B word and came out with a number in the high M word. Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously it was subject to negotiation. And as I said at the time, I'll let you comment. People can criticize the number for $12 billion a year revenue, gross revenue corporation, but at the end of the day, you're talking about uh, potential problems you had in terms of length, and I know it's still going, and how many years of litigation this would take, and then, of course, any issues with preemption or causation that may come up. Correct. Um, so this could have gone in a lot of different directions. It, it, well, preemption was one. I mean, the NFL could have waited for the ruling on that, and if we had lost, many thousands of claims would be gone. And and, and let's say that's clear that real quickly, preemption for those listening is basically the CBA preempted. As you talked about the owners wanting one or the other, CBA preempted recovery because it dealt with these issues in that form. 
it would have forced him to go to arbitration. Right. I don't think a lot of players would want to be in a in a arbitration with an N with the NFL. But um, so that threatened to dismiss many of the cases. They had other motions that they were going to make. One was uh, teed up and pretty much ready to go was to deem that the players, uh, the retired players, should only have access to the workers' comp uh, mm. programs because they wanted to bring a motion to say that the club, the NFL, should be treated as an employer because it was really just a trade association and it was really the clubs that they worked for. Uh, you had the causation issues, um, as you, if you, which something that's very important in this also. That's clearly missed by the objectors who are trying to blow this up. Is this includes players who played 20, 30, maybe even longer, 40 years ago, hmm. played eight games a year, 16 games a year. You know, many of those claims would be barred in the legal system because of statute of limitations. And many states for personal injuries only have two or three year statutes of limitations. Now there are ways to make the, to extend those, but extending them 20 30 40 years is really unheard of and there and those players are included in the settlement if you're 75 years old and you come down with a compensable illness you'll get compensated so there were there were so many things i mean we we were doing focus groups you know in case the cases went to trial and if anybody read articles uh, that were being that were out there, I mean, the, even the diehard fans. I mean, if you could read some of the commentary that they were posting, you could see some some were not that sympathetic to the players. Some of the people out there think of the players as you know these you know millionaires, and they think they're all millionaires still to this day, and that these <laughs> were big guys that were running into each other. You know, so so there were a lot of there were a lot of issues, and it was a per, it was the perfect case for settling because we had a lot of pressure on the NFL thanks to people like you mm-hmm. who put a lot of attention and really put a light on this and, and brought these problems to the attention of not just the public but to the legal profession, guys like us. You know, we learned about that this because of the reporting. And that and that's the way things work. That's the way change is affected in our society. Yeah, and and I don't know if you can speak to the way I looked at it, the causation issue beyond statute of limitations and older players was if there were depositions and if a player was forced to sit there and answer questions, you know, how long do you play football? 20 years. How many years in the NFL? Four or five. What about when you fell on the ice? What about getting older? What about when you had a bike accident? I, I just think that would have been, people don't know what kind of process that would have been, which would have been very difficult and long for these guys. Yeah, I mean, imagine being a juror in a trial, and you want to do the right thing by everybody, and you're hearing evidence that here's a player who played since Pop Warner, and he played a lot of rough sports. Maybe you wrestled in addition to playing football, you know, things that where you bang your head, or maybe you played lacrosse, mm-hmm. might have got in the head with a ball. I mean, you know, there are so many things, and then you're asking a jury to say, um, okay, we will put this, we'll, we'll hang the price tag of these injuries just on the NFL. And remember, there's there is science out there. I mean, there is a pretty it's it's a developing body of science. I mean, not as far as we really would have liked it to have gone um, on the causation issue alone. I mean, I can tell you that there are studies. You know, we like to talk about the studies that for those of us representing the players like right. studies by Dr. McKee, Dr. Stern that we we all know about right. the Brain Bank in Boston. But there are other scientists that say there's no connection between concussions and these problems. So. It's all over the place, and and I think these things also made the case ripe for settling because um, if it were a slam dunk for the NFL, they would have just had the cases dismissed. If it were a slam dunk for us, we'd probably still be litigating. And in the meantime, we have people like Kevin Turner who has passed away, right. Steve Smith and his family that are waiting for help. 
Yeah, and again, my question about Kevin Turner and and may he rest in peace is how much of the lawsuit was driven, or I should say the settlement, was driven by those in most dire straits, like a Kevin Turner suffering from ALS. I mean, again, I don't want to make it sound like one person drove the whole entire settlement, but was that a driving force in settling rather than litigating where you saw people in great dire straits like Kevin? Kevin Kevin was a driving force, but Kevin was, in our view, representative of the bigger problem. There were a lot of Kevin Turners out there. I mean, I mentioned Steve mm. Smith. Steve doesn't mind that we mention him, um, mm-hmm. but there are others, and we're all aware. I'm not going to use their names, but we're aware of young players who have been diagnosed with ALS in the last few years. These are young men. And there are a number of them out there. There are a number of players that are showing the signs and symptoms of dementia long before you would think that somebody uh, would be developing those problems. I mean, we're, we're aware, all aware of 70 and 75-year-old people, 65-year-old people, a little older, maybe developing problems, but we were aware of other cases with younger people. And the burden of their health care was falling on their wives and on their family and on their children. And so we, so Kevin, it wasn't just Kevin, although Kevin was a fantastic class rep because he was so engaged. Kevin and Sean Wooden, who were the class reps, uh, in this case, wanted to know everything that happened. They wanted to know. They wanted to be kept informed of the negotiations, so that, because they cared about their brothers in the league, and they they wanted to make sure that whatever their name was going to go on was going to be something they could live with. So, but Kevin is just Kevin and Sean are just truly representative of what's out there, and we were very, very much aware. I, Andrew, I'll tell you, I do, I still do a call. I do several series of calls, probably about every two weeks, mostly with the wives and families of retired players who need help, just to give them an update on the set. It's just something that's developed informally. Give them mm-hmm. an update on the settlement, talk about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I really wonder if the people who are objecting and holding this settlement up really understand the pain they're causing by this because, you know, um, it, it seems to me that they don't. But there are a number of people that really need this help. They're 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 borrowing against some of them are borrowing against their NFL awards at usurious rates. I wrote a letter to the class recently about it, just asking them to be careful. But yeah, and let's let's get to that. We so we have a settlement. We should say that the 765 settlement was not approved. Uh, Judge Brody wanted that cap. There was a cap on it lifted, and that was done. And then we did. She did give final approval, and I'll bring it up to date so you don't have to. Then it went to an appeal in the Third Circuit, um, and then it was approved by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And people should be asking, "Well, why isn't it over?" And I'm sure you're asking the same thing. We have some objectors that have continued to pursue to the Supreme Court, and I think one of the reasons we have you on now, the timeliness of this, is that these were just filed this month this week uh, to continue this to the Supreme Court. So how many objectors are we talking about? What are their concerns? And uh, how much frustration is it for the the huge class of players waiting for payment? Because uh, payment can't be administered until the appeals are exhausted, correct? Yeah. You know, nothing, and it's not considered final until the appeals are exhausted. Right. So okay. you have very succinctly and, and adequately represented what's happened. I mean, we've got a 136-page opinion from a district court judge, and uh, it's been denied twice by the Third Circuit. You know, a 70-page opinion by a three-judge panel, 
And then the objectors went back to the Third Circuit and said, we would like all of the judges to reconsider this. And they, they did a process called a, a non banc where all of mm-hmm. the judges on the Third Circuit look at it, and not one judge dissented when they refused that appeal. So we have uh, really been doing very well in the legal system. Now we're, we have two groups of objectors. There were many, many groups of objectors, and many of them have, um, have decided to allow the settlement to go forward. Uh, but there are two groups left. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, they are just really rehashing the same objections that were dismissed by Judge Brody, that were dismissed by the Third Circuit twice, and it's, it's the same old thing. And what is their primary objection, or is it different for each group? It, it's, it's their primary, the primary objection reflects a real fundamental misunderstanding of the settlement. They continue to say that CTE is an independent disease and that this, the settlement does not compensate. CTE. And the reason that is a fundamental misunderstanding is because CTE is the cause of certain diseases. We know from even from the brain bank that there were people who had CTE on the brain but lived an asymptomatic life. They developed nothing. So it's, it's not adequate or even honest to tell the players that, you know, you all have CTE and you're all getting sick. We know that's mm-hmm. not true. Some players will get sick. We don't know who those players are. And we didn't want to tie it to CTE because if, as the objectors predict, there's a test one day to say if people have CTE while they're alive, that doesn't exist today. You have to be dead to get the test done. Right. So, But if there's one one day that magically appears and you can figure it out, would it be fair to take a player who has ALS or dementia and maybe no diagnosis of CTE and say you're not going to get benefits? So we didn't tie the benefits to this pathological condition. We tied it to real-world conditions. If you are sick with ALS, dementia, Parkinson's, or um, Alzheimer's, you get compensated because we're going to say that you've been injured by concussions. Now, they're upset because there are some conditions that are not compensated, uh, like anger management issues, um, you know, things like that, mood swings. But, you know, those are multifactorial problems in our society. Do you know that the leading selling drugs by pharmaceutical companies are antidepressants? So trying to hmm. convince the NFL to pay for mood swings and, and depression, not that it's not real, and not that it might, not even, it might even be associated with, with concussions. I believe it is. But we couldn't get the defendant, in this case the NFL, to compensate those conditions. But we needed to get the sickest players taken care of. They needed the compensation. And if players who are suffering from depression today develop any of those sicknesses in the next 65 years, they will get compensated. That will be there for them and their families. So, so when they, so, so it's a, like I say, I understand it's a complicated settlement and these diseases are complicated, but these objectors are, are really misstating it. And look, I, I question the motives of the lawyers, frankly, involved. And I want to make it clear. I do not question the motives of the players who are objecting and have loaned their names to these lawyers. But they ought to take a look at their lawyers. They ought to take a close look at their lawyers because their lawyers would go away if they, if they received the payment. Uh, now, and I think these objectors think that they have lawyers that are really there for them, mm. and they're not. So that's something to consider. Let me clarify on CTE because it's been much in the news. And actually, I had on my recent podcast Jeff Miller, the point man from the NFL on concussions and, co- and uh, head injuries, and he was the one that sort of a gotcha moment people talked about in front of Congress saying, "Does is there a link between playing football and CTE? 
at a congressional forum. He said, yes, there is, and obviously people jumped on that. He was sitting next to Anne McKee, who you referenced, studying these brains at the Brain Bank of Boston University, who is finding an overwhelming percentage of CTE in brains of deceased football players. So again, how do you, how do you counter these arguments that, well, you've got to cover this because look at all these players getting it in these brain bank studies that are being done by Boston University? I would say this, that in the last several years, because of the reporting and the litigation, there isn't an NFL player alive that doesn't know about the issues relating to concussions, CTE, and the, de- and the injuries and diseases they cause. Right. Because of this litigation, players are out there getting tested. So if they, because if they're exhibiting these symptoms, uh, they're going to get tested, they're going to get a diagnosis, and they're going to get compensated. So, you know, we are, we are trying to deal with uh, the reality that many of these players, because they've come down with conditions associated with concussions, whether or not it's related to CTE, that if you're a retired football player and you get any of these compensable conditions, you're going to get compensation under the settlement. And if you're not, you're going to get tested. And if you are at a certain level of impairment, but not quite as high as the compensable level, there will be some pharmaceutical help and counseling and things like that, other benefits the settlement offers. I, I just want to say one thing, though. I, I live in the legal world, in the, in the world where people debate this. You know, and like I said, all, all I handled was a case. People right. are still going to debate whether their kids should play football or not. But the studies that haven't yet been done, and Ann McKee says this herself, and so does Stern, Robert Stern and many of the, the, the big names in this field that are studying it, the study that has not been done is the one that studies the brains of people who, in addition to people who played football, are those that haven't played football. We don't have a brain bank of brains that have been tested for tau deposits or for CTE, so we don't really know if the only thing causing it is con- are, are concussions. We don't. All I'm saying is, I'm not saying I don't believe it is. I mean, I brought the case. I stood behind it. I invested in it with my clients. But I'm saying that when you're in court, you've got to get this testimony to a jury. It's got to be. It's got to be on you know sound scientific principles. So many of the things that people read and they they see uh, the things that are going on in the brain bank, many of those things might not have ever gotten to a jury. Mm-hmm. It might not be yet accepted science. So, CTE, let's try to, again, I'll put this to bed after this question. CTE is, yeah. not, is not covered in the settlement, but symptoms associated with it, and this is what Judge Brody commented on in her opinion, such as dementia, such as depression, such as mood swings, are covered in other diagnoses. Is that a fair way to put it? It's, it, so I would put it, the way you put it is fine, and I'm not trying to split hairs. I'm sure. saying that if somebody tells me CTE is not covered, I'm going to say, you may be right that we are not testing for CTE in the settlement. But what we are doing is we're compensating the most serious diseases that doctors like McKee, Stern, and others say are associated with CTE. And that is Alzheimer's, ALS, dementia, and Parkinson's. So we are compensating the most serious injuries. The settlement does not compensate what I would call, and I'm not saying these are minor to the people going through it, but what we would say are the lesser injuries like depression and mood swing and anger management. Right. And and those are some of the complaints by the objectors. And I think what the judge said in her opinion and what the Third Circuit found was, you know, in settlements like this, it is not that unusual to have to draw lines of what gets compensated and what doesn't. And you can't force defendants to pay claims that they don't want to 
pay. But we were able to get them to put a significant many millions of dollars into testing people and into providing some relief for people who are going through some of the more minor symptoms and to provide significant cash compensation for those with the more serious diseases. And in terms of recovery, when and if, I'm assuming when, these appeals are exhausted and, and it's final, explain the process simply if you can in terms of a player who played in the NFL and this sweeps in all retired players. Does he have to go in front of a uh, medical tribunal, if you will, to sort of see where he fits on the grid of recovery? How does that work? No, I mean, that's one of the beauty, beautiful things of the settlement. We, we have simplified it, being very much aware of the experience NFL players have with disability benefits and the right. runaround they get. So we have taken that out. There is no panel. You can go to your own doctor and get a diagnosis. If you're diagnosed with one of the serious compensable injuries, you send that diagnosis in, and you'll be compensated based upon that. If you um, don't go to your own doctor, we have the BAP, the Baseline Assessment Program, and players can go get tested for nothing. And if, and if as a result of that test, it turns out that they have Alzheimer's or dementia, um, they can use the diagnosis there. But there's a benefit here that people don't talk about that is not really listed in the settlement, but needs to, but players need to be aware of that. If they come through the BAP and they get tested and they have a dementia diagnosis, they not only can apply to our settlement for compensation, but they can apply if they are vested players, they can apply to their um, to the union. And I can't imagine that they would be turned down for for neurocognitive benefits if they've been cleared through the settlement for compensation. So I would imagine they'd be able to take that diagnosis and also get benefits through the CBA. And this is a fund that you say should be covering 60-something years and, and over a billion dollars by the time it's, it's completed? Yeah, it's, it was projected in the earlier versions before it was uncapped that it would pay out over a billion dollars in the 65 years. But, um, you know, now it's an uncapped settlement. And, you know, my goal right now is to get every player tested, get them diagnosed, and make sure they get compensated. So if it goes to $2 billion, it, that, so be it. That's at the uh, risk of the NFL because it's now an uncapped settlement. And your costs and all the lawyer costs are paid by the NFL above and beyond the player costs, correct? That, that's right. That'll be awarded by the court, and that comes straight from the NFL, not out of the fund. And, and when, when do we expect the Supreme Court to decide on these lingering objectors? Yeah, that's, that's the part I don't know. I mean, I, you know, we're talking to our Supreme Court experts, and um, we ha they have already filed their petitions for cert. We are filing oppositions. Uh, our opposition is going to be due sometime in early November, and we're hoping that we'll hear something within three or four months after that. So hopefully early next year, and we're hoping we get a good result and we can, you know, we're working every day, even though the settlement's on appeal. My lawyers are still working with the claim administrator and others to get these programs set up. You know, right. that, one of the things we're working on is that, you know, players who have been receiving state or federal aid will have liens as a result of that. So if they get compensation, the state or the federal government has the right to come and take money from their award. We're spending this time to negotiate those liens down significantly. I mean, when I say significantly, I mean very, very drastic reductions in that so that the players get as much of the cash as possible. I don't know if you can answer this question, Chris, but if, if I'm I'll just sort of take sort of an average example. A player plays three to five years in the NFL, 
maybe 15, 20 years ago, has some mood disorders, has some fogginess, sometimes can't remember where he put his keys. I know it's hard to figure this out with just such a broad example, but any ballpark on recovery for someone like that? So I, I get those calls all the time. Yeah, I'm for, sure you do. For the, yeah, and I don't mind doing it hypothetically. So for the player, let's say, who's in his 50s, um, who is exhibiting what we would say on the spectrum is on the lower end of the of the you know the neurocog spectrum mm-hmm. you know, a little forgetfulness maybe some mood swings um, that player would have to get tested and depending on where their testing came in would determine where they go so for example if they are if there is if it's determined there is no neurocognitive problem but it's just the aging process and like all of us you know I'm 56 I forget my keys once in a while too that's right. one thing then we have some that where they will not um, they will they will show some impairment in the settlement we call that level one although you won't qualify for um, compensation they may qualify for other benefits either benefits through the through their neurocog program disability benefits through the, through the CBA or there is there are other supplemental benefits that are being uh, provided through the settlement help maybe counseling pharmaceutical help but that will not be that's not cash if they if they if the scoring on these exams proves that they are more impaired than level one level one point five that's treated as early dementia and they will receive compensation and then if they continue to progress to full blown dementia, they will get an upgrade in their payment so that's the spectrum and rather than say where I think somebody who forgets their keys would fall because that alone might not get you that's not going to put you into the realm of compensation um you know, there might be other things going on that need to be tested. Right. So what the, what, the, what the tests in the baseline assessment are designed to do is they test everything. They test, you know, for intelligence. Uh, you know, one of the things that it, it becomes impaired is, I hate that you don't want to say you become less intelligent, but you can actually see a drop-off. Mm-hmm. If we have, like for a player's college grades, if we have those things, we have a baseline on them where we can see where they would, how well they did in school, how well they did in college, that can be tested in a way to see if there's really been a decline. And if there has been a decline and an impairment in that domain, that might elevate them into a compensable category. I guess my final question is, I know this case is your case, and you're not really uh, involved with other cases, but don't we have similar cases going on against the NHL? A recent case against the NCAA, which I believe was settled for a $75 million number. Uh, And do we have cases against... I don't even know the answer to this, against the union and or the individual NFL teams ongoing as well. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of litigation that has come out of um, the NFL concussion litigation. Right. Uh, started by, you know, the 5,000 players that put their name on a complaint and were filed by us or other lawyers. So so that's it's spun into a lot of litigation. I don't know much about that other litigation, frankly. I mean, I looked at some of these other cases. I decided not to do it. I wanted to focus 100% on the NFL case and get it done. But the one thing I will say for the players, for the retired players that I represent, that the number you just threw out in the NCAA, and I'm not being critical. I don't know the facts of that. Sure. That, that settlement was $75 million only for testing for over 100,000 potential athletes. And in our settlement, we have real cash compensation, real testing, and real benefits for about twenty a class of about 20,000, which shows, mm. I think, the success of our case versus others. 
And I did mention the union, whether we don't need to comment on whether there's suits out there or not. But I'm just curious, in your negotiations, in your dealings with all these players, was there coordination? Was there discussion? Was there any collaboration with the union since theoretically you guys are on the same side? Um, I would say this. Yeah, theoretically, we're on the same side. I, I was not contacted. I mean, I'm a, I, would, I would have been available to speak to anybody at the union. I, I was not contacted by the union during the, the litigation. Um, you know, I, I think that for, for me, I, I was representing a lot of people, and I don't mean just my clients that I was talking to on a daily basis. I mean all the players that were contacting me as lead counsel. And many of them had concerns about whether the unions the union had, and I'm not expressing an opinion either way, I'm not picking a fight with the union, right. but many of them had concerns about whether the union really cared that much about retired players. I think right. many retired players feel abandoned by their union. That's Whether that's just perception or reality, that's a real unfortunate thing that I would hope the union would try to do a better job with. And I, I apologize, I keep saying last question. This, this really okay. is uh, this sort of the big picture. You've been on the front lines dealing with the aftermath of a violent game. Uh, Collision sport, not a contact sport. The train wrecks that happen every play. I I guess I was sort of interested in more your sociological rather than legal perspective about the game, having seen this up close in the carnage uh, and where it's going. We know it's safer. I cover that every day but we're trying to make an inherently violent game that causes this damage safe. And sort of your thoughts on the future of football. You know, that's interesting. I, I, I have some, I'm a fan of football. I'm not a big fan. I'm not going to tell you, I can tell you the players who played in the 1980s or, you know, I, I, I took my kids recently to see the giants play the Redskins. Right. Bad for the Giants. But I, I you know, so I, I'm a modest fan, but I will tell you that um, you raise probably the most important question in this whole debate. And when I've been criticized for ending the legal case, and people have said to me, well, we haven't seen enough of the documents, and why didn't you keep this going? Right. And I try to explain, hey, I didn't end the discussion. I just ended the case because the players needed this compensation now. But I will, t- I will say this. You know, I, I see football, unless they rein this problem in, Unless the player, you know, and they are the league is trying. I mean, they've they've uh, they've really cut down on head-to-head collisions. They're, the refs are throwing the flags when they see bad things going on. I think they are paring that back. But boxing is. I mean, I'm sorry, football is going to head the route. I think of boxing unless this is uh, unless the the NFL really stays on top of this. Because if mothers can, if mothers and parents continue to perceive the sport to be as dangerous as it is now. You know they're going to put they're going to try to get their kids into other sports and you can do that today. You can do that today. Some of these guys are so athletic they can play they can play other sports. So I do see that I do see this as a as a problem. But I think the NFL is trying to do a good job to manage it. And mm-hmm. you know the Amer- American public has a real thirst for football. We all love it. I love it. And I can watch the game and enjoy it. Like I can watch Floyd Mayweather in a 12 round boxing match beat a guy, dominate him, and not knock him out. And I'm, I can be okay with that. And right. I don't know if most fans can feel that way, but I can. And I can enjoy watching football without head-to-head collisions or, people, or guys getting knocked out and enjoy it. Yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy because we lament the violence, but in many ways we crave watching it. So we all have this dichotomy going on within us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of the, the the comparison is, you know, the people who go to car races and they say mm-hmm. they, you know, they kind of hang out to watch the car wrecks. 
you know, we, we have a really, we have an important question to ask ourselves if that's really, if that's really how we feel and that's not just a joke, because if it's not a joke, it's a little sad. Right. Well, Chris, this has been great. And I, I think you said it there and I want to commend you. You are, you're, this is not ending the discussion. In fact, you're one of the people that helped start it. And, uh, I've just felt, I've, I've felt, uh, proud that you mentioned me and sort of putting a spotlight on this and you've been part of that as well. We're wrestling with an in- injury that's a silent injury in sports in a very violent sport. We're trying to make it better and you've helped a lot of people. I appreciate you doing this and coming on the podcast. As have you, Andy. And thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker football podcast, fantasy feast, even money and college draft podcast, all at Rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.